Let's look at God's word together. This is Luke 17. We're looking at the, verse, the first 19 verses. This is God's word to you because he loves you. And he said, this Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the the continual message in the Bible that you do not deal with us according to our sin, but according to your steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown us in Christ. We ask that you would increase our faith, and I pray that you would especially make, form this church here, this body here, this community here, into a community of, of sinners who come and find grace. And would that truth shape us, shape our relationships, uh, shape our mission, uh, shape our hearts and our identity and all, everything about us. We pray that you would even do that a bit tonight or this morning by your spirit. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, I think this passage is a good one to kind of uh, finish this, uh, this series we've been going through of Luke, this kind of on, on discipleship. And one of the reasons is because I think this passage really hits at the very heart of what is, Christ, what is, what is distinct, what is unique about Christian discipleship. What, it, what is it about following Jesus that's not like anything else? It's not like any other kind of religion, any other kind of spirituality. What's unique about it? And I think it's right here in this passage. And uh, actually, I, I've just been started reading a Flannery O'Connor novel called uh, Wise Blood, which I, I'm not, I'm just a few chapters into it, but it starts off really well. It's about, uh, the main character's name is Hazel Moat. And uh, it begins with, he's on a train coming home from the military. He's been in the military. And uh, the, 
the way that O'Connor describes Hazel Mote is he's uh, this waspy looking, I, I, I don't, can't picture waspy, but you know, it's not a, um, you know, very, uh, you know, what do you say, uh, complimentary uh, uh, description, but it says that, uh, that, you know, he looked just like his grandfather, and his grandfather was like this um, uh, hellfire preacher who screamed a lot and, and traveled around from church to tr- church and warning people about hell, and he, he wanted to be just like his grandfather. So he's, he, he, he was going to be a preacher, he dressed like a preacher, he had the waspy look like his grandfather, but he went into the military, and he said, okay, I'm just going to go to the military for a few months, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let the military corrupt me. I know that going into the military, they're going to want to corrupt me. And so he goes to the military, and it describes a scene where he's, uh, he's, the, the guys he's living with are about to go off to a brothel and inviting him along. And he says, you know, now my chance has come to not be corrupted by the military. And he puts on his glasses, and he's about to say to them, you know, you're all going to go to hell for, for going to the brothel. And as soon as he starts talking, his voice cracks. And everyone's just silently looking at him, and he's humiliated because he, I couldn't stand against the, the evil. And so he says after that, that, he says, I just don't believe in anything anymore. I was going to be uncorrupted. If I, if I couldn't stand against the evil, well, at least I'll just believe in nothing. That's better than becoming corrupted. And so the, the story goes, you know, he, uh, it's, he comes, he's coming back on this train. He's coming home. He doesn't really know anyone. And he's walking around in the, in the train and he goes into the restroom and he's sitting in the stall and there's written on the stall wall it says Mrs. Loretta Watts 60 Buckley Road the friendliest bed in town and so there he is sitting there alone he's uh, in his preacher outfit and uh, he, he takes an, he sits there for a while and he eventually writes down the address and gets a cab and he says take me to Loretta Watts or whatever, and so the cab's kind of looking back at the preacher-looking guy, and he says, you know, she doesn't have a lot of preachers <laughs> coming around to visit her. She turns out to be this kind of large, greasy woman in a pink nightgown, and, uh, and so here he's, so, but the interesting thing is this little conversation that the cab driver has with uh, uh, Hazel Moat. And he says, uh, he says, so he says, you know, preachers don't, don't go visit her very much. He says, I'm not a preacher. He says, well, you look like a preacher because everyone knew his grandfather in this town. He says, you look like a preacher and you got a preacher hat on. And he's like, I am not a preacher. He's like, hey, listen, I understand, you know, if you're going to warn people about sin, you've got to experience it a little bit so you know how bad it is. I understand, you know, ain't nobody perfect, right? He's like, I am not a preacher. And, uh, and, and he says, listen here, I don't believe in anything. And then the cab driver says this really prophetic word to him that's the trouble with you preachers you've all got too good to believe in anything you've all gotten to be too good to believe in anything and I think that um, uh, this is a warning that the way that we fall away from Jesus and knowing Jesus walking with Jesus is actually not from sin it's from getting caught up too much in being good that we don't need to believe in anything anymore. And one of the big questions that we need to ask is, is a good Christian someone who doesn't sin? You've got to think about that question. Is that what a good Christian is, someone who doesn't sin? And the big answer that Jesus is going to tell us in this text is no. That is not 
what a good Christian is, someone who doesn't sin. You, every single one of you, the most mature Christian in this church and in this city is going to sin against God every single day of their life for the rest of their life. And they're going to sin against people every day of their life. So not sinning is not what it means to be a good Christian. And, uh, and being a Christian, just being a disciple of Jesus, walking with Jesus, following Jesus, a, a huge, what is really the heart of it, the distinct thing about it, is finding out that I'm actually way worse than I ever imagined. And actually, as I get more mature, I'm going to find out more about that. God's going to um, peel back the, the cover on my heart. I'm going to find out that I'm, I, I, I'm a way worse person than I ever thought. And then I'm going to find out that God's grace is so much bigger than I ever dreamed. That he actually, God loves a sinner like me through Jesus. He knows every flaw, and he still loves me. He still walks me. He still gives me all the promises. And then it's when we believe that. I mean, that's what Jesus says here. In this passage, he says, if your brother sins against you seven times, he's talking about the Christian community. He says, you're going to be sinning against each other. It's going to be happening all the time. There's no way to, to escape it. And he says, but when you find out that God still loves you, and that he forgives you, it, that's what softens you. That's what makes you serve people. That's what makes you patient. That's what makes you loving, is when you really see that, that I'm not trying to be good, I'm trying to know the grace of God. And so what I want to do is we uh, look at this passage, I want to just tell you three, three things about discipleship and sin. Being a, being a Christian and sin. First, God knows that you're going to sin every day of your life. God already knows that. That's not a surprise to him. You will sin every day of your life, and it's not, doesn't catch him off guard. He's not shocked by that. Second, God is unmoved by your good works. God is unimpressed with your good works. They do not impress him. He, they don't stir him up to like you more. He doesn't say wow at them, so we'll get to that. That's the, uh, Jesus says it, not me. Okay, that's what he says. The third thing is, is that God is moved by desperation. God is not moved by, God, uh, by good works, but God is moved by desperation. So those are the three things we're going to look at. First, God knows you're going to sin every day of your life. Now, you can see that uh, right there in verse 1, where Jesus says, temptations to sin are sure to come. And the word that's used there for uh, temptations to sin is, word, is the Greek word uh, scandalon. Which, uh, which is literally a stumbling block or, uh, you know, an enticement to sin. And it's where we get the English word scandal, right? And Jesus is essentially, literally saying, it is impossible that there's going to be no stumbling blocks, no enticements. It's impossible there's going to be no scandals in the church. It's going to happen. And, uh, and what this means is that um, Jesus does not have the illusion that he is forming a religious community that doesn't sin anymore. I mean, that's, the world is full of religious communities that say, you know what, we are going to create a, pur, a pure community that doesn't sin against God, that keeps the law. I mean, you know, some of you have uh, just seen the illusion of that um, just with uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden. And, you know, they're finding out, I don't know, stacks of porn in his, in his uh, compound. And I don't know if you've read any of those articles that in the most fundamentalist, most conservative uh, towns in the in the Muslim world is where uh, hidden porn is ra- more rampant than anywhere else in the world, and it's they they're religious communities that are critic you know criticizing the West for being indulgent and uh, and yet 
they, have, uh, they are pretending to create communities where there's no sin, there's no disobedience to God, and it's a complete lie. And, uh, you know, uh, not to, I don't mean to diss on other religions, and, you know, Christians do this as well, but I, I did, I, just to give you another illustration, I had a friend who, uh, it was, he's a Mormon, and we were having a conversation, and he was telling me, you know, I go, you know, I go and I take care of the elderly, and we go serve them and stuff. He's like, you know, I don't really love them at all. We're just doing that to look good. And he says, you know, I would never live in Utah. And, and I, if, you're, if you have a Mormon background, I don't mean to, to diss Mormons, but he, I would never live there. The, uh, Utah is the most in-debt state in the country because everyone is trying to create an all-American life with the boat and the house and the soccer and the blonde hair and the everything. And, and everyone is trying to create this illusion that um, we are a sin-free community. And it's a complete lie. And what Jesus says up front right here about the community that he's forming, I'm not creating a sinless community. It's impossible. It's impossible that there's not going to be stumbling blocks, that there's not going to be enticements to sin. It's going to happen. Now, he doesn't say it's good. He says if you're a false teacher and you're leading people astray, you're going to be punished for it. But... Uh, but he doesn't have the illusion that there's not going to be sin in this body that he's making right here. And um, what's fascinating is that when he says in verse 3, look at verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Jesus is not saying pay attention to make sure that there's no sin in your life. Make sure, you know, make sure your life's perfect. That's not what pay attention means. It pay attention that you deal with sin properly. The, the, the community that, that Jesus is, is building is not one where there's no sin. It's, it's a community where sin is, is, is faced and dealt with and talked about and looked at and admitted. And I just want to point out a few things that Jesus says about how do we as a community deal with sin, you know, sinning against one another, whatever it is. That it, could be small, it could be big things like, um, you know, Maybe someone is stealing money from, you know, or has a, a corrupt business or something. But it could be small things of just being cold towards one another, gossiping about one another, small things. How do we, as a, as a community, where we are going to do those things to one another, we're going to be sitting in our families, how do we deal with it? The few things that he says. The first thing is don't pretend it's not there. Don't pretend that sin is not there. He says in verse 3, if your brother, this is a Christian, this is someone in this community, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So part of acknowledging that we're going to have sin here is that, uh, is that we got to name it when there is sin. And, and let me just tell you, for most of us, I, if you're like me, uh, that's a hard thing to get rebuked. Someone say, pointing out sin in your life. But the fact is that one of the things that is an indication that you're really getting the gospel, the gospel saying that I'm, I'm a sinner, that I'm way worse than anyone here ever imagined, and yet in Christ, God loves me unconditionally, immovably, unshakably. Christ's love does not go up and down based on my sin. What that does is it's just an assumption. I'm just assuming you're going to have to rebuke me at some point in this endeavor, our time together. You're going to have to. I just assume it. I, I know I'm a sinner. It, it, that doesn't surprise me. I, and, and that's a big thing that, that we should prepare ourselves for that. And, and to say, you know, there's probably going to be some time where someone in this community is going to have to say something to my life and say, listen, you're, you know, I really see you're treating someone wrong or, or you know, you really need to work on this. And that shouldn't derail me. 
If, if my heart is in the gospel, if, the, if, the, if my identity is in the gospel, being rebuked by someone should not just completely derail my identity. And, um, and I'll tell you, one thing that you have to be prepared for is if this, someone is going to speak in your life and point out a sin in your life, I'm just going to tell you right now, they're probably not going to do it very well. Right? They're, they're going to be a mixture of they care about you and they're frustrated and you, you, know, you piss them off and they want to let you know about it. It's not going to be pure, oh, this is purely just for your good. And They're going to be a mixture. And if you're not ready to acknowledge that when they speak into your life, it's going to be a mixture, you're just going to point out the bad side of it and you're going to say, you're just, and, you, and then you're going to throw it back at them. So when part of being prepared for someone to speak into my life is to say, I know they're not going to do it perfectly. And so I'm going to give them a break on that, and I'm just going to try to hear and assume that they're doing it for my good. And, and of course, you know, the other side of that is Jesus is very careful that if you are going to speak into someone's life, he's, you know, if you're going to get the speck out of your brother's eye, you've you got to deal with the plank in your own eye. So he first says, if you see a sin in someone else's your life, you need to use that as an opportunity to see all the sin in your life. Anytime you see sin in someone else's life, the first thing you do is use it as an opportunity to reflect on how sinful you are. Let it be a reminder to you of how sinful you are. But the big, the big first thing that Jesus says is we don't pretend that there's no sin here. There is. And we, and we need to name it. Okay? We can name it because we have Jesus. It's all forgiven. It's all, God still loves us. Second, don't be surprised by other people's sin. So he says in verse 4, if the brother sins against you seven times. So uh, it's actually literally into you. If he sins into you, you know, uh, one of the things, there's kind of a romantic idea that we have about um, we're going to have a, a community of sinners. We're all broken people. And it sounds very romantic and still, until someone gossips about you and, or someone gives you a cold shoulder or doesn't, doesn't follow through on a commitment. And up to that point, it was very, you know, yeah, we're all broken, we're all loving each other. But then someone does something wrong to you where it really hurts. And what's going to happen then? That's when it really counts. And part of it is for us to, to not be surprised that people are going to sin against us. We're sinning against people. And it's a good thing before it happens to prepare yourself for that. Prepare yourself that it's going to happen so that when it happens, you don't all of a sudden put up walls and... and you know, go into a rage and, and bitterness, just be ready. It's, they're going to do that. And you're going to have to be ready to, to walk through that and to, and, and, and to forgive. And so, uh, and what that means also is that sin is hurtful. Uh, sin does hurt. If someone gossips about you, it hurts. Uh, you know, if someone doesn't come, come through, if someone uh, doesn't approach you, if you're pursuing a relationship and they don't reciprocate, that hurts. And, and it's okay to acknowledge that, but to also not be surprised by it. The people here, every single one of them are sinners, okay? That's another thing. Another thing, don't forget to say sorry. This is part of dealing with sin. How do you have a community? Jesus is making a realistic community of, of people who are going to mistreat one another, and he knows that. Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in a day. By the way, seven is, you know, the number of fullness. So this is kind of like this guy's sinning against you all day. It's just like pouring out, right? It's unpleasant. Full day of, um, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must, you must forgive him. So there's a key that Jesus says, the, the, the guy coming and saying, I repent, is an important piece. And, um, 
that we need to be in the habit of saying to one another, I, I wish I hadn't done that. I shouldn't have done that. And, and without excuses. We don't make excuses and say, you know, well, I, um, you know, I woke up on the bad side of the bed or I'm, uh, you know, I've got a lot going on at work or something like that. If you do something wrong to someone, you just say, I shouldn't have done that. I wish I hadn't. And it was wrong. Sorry. And, and you know, if you're, a par- if, you're, if you're married, if you have kids, you have to, you know, I, both to, to my wife and to my kids, I'm having to do that. And that's a, an important piece to not just say, oh, okay, I know they'll forgive me. I know this will wash over. Don't let it just wash over. Make sure you go and say it. And a lot of times the people will be like, hey, don't worry about it. I didn't even notice. Um, but it's a, good, it's a good practice to uh, don't forget to say, Sorry, um, you know, one, I, I, I was reading a, a, a marriage book. One of the illustrations he used was of, keep, you know, cleaning up a house. And, you know, I, I don't do this, so this is a bad illustration. But, um, you know, if, if Shannon's going to laugh that I'm using this illustration. You know, if you drop a piece of laundry on the floor, just pick it up right then and deal with it. And then the house stays clean, right? You know, I, I leave clothes all over our bedroom. So... <laughs> Uh, but deal with it right at the time. And that's what, when you say sorry, if you don't say sorry, the one, the one time is not a big deal, but the socks build up. And that's what happened with sin and wrongs against one another build up, and then all of a sudden they explode. And there's bitterness that, that um, grows inside of us towards one another. Just say it. And, and you know what? You'll, in this community, people will say, hey, don't worry about it. Thank you. It brings peace to acknowledge that. So, so we need to do that. And then the last thing is that Jesus says, don't make a bigger deal of it than Jesus does. Don't make a bigger deal of other people's sin than Jesus does. I mean, the brevity of this, this is like uh, a verse and a half. Conflict resolution. You know, there's books written, seminars on this. Jesus gives a verse and a half. This is how conflict resolution works. You say, I'm sorry. And, and there's a brevity. It just, the, uh, um, you know, he sins against you seven times. They say, I repent. You forgive him. And the fact is, that's how God is with us. You know, some of us think when we sin, we got to pay back. We got to do all these good things to get back on God, God's right side. God doesn't do that. You just say, God, I, I'm, forgive me that I've done that. It's over. It's over before you even did it. Jesus has already paid for all your sins. There's such a brevity. It's get on with your life. Get on to the next thing. And that's a part, of, that's the way that Jesus deals with other people's sins. That's how we need to deal with each other's sins, is, is, uh, is don't make it a bigger deal than Jesus does. So the reality of this community is, is God says every single one of you are going to sin every day of your life, and you're going to sin one another. Let's be realistic about what kind of community this is going to be. Let's not romanticize and say, oh, yeah, we're all broken people, but we're never going to hurt one another. Yeah, we are. And so one of the questions um, that that brings up is why wouldn't we be a community like that? What would hold us back from being a community that would be gracious, that is quick to forgive, does have brevity, does say I'm sorry, and is, is quick to say that? And, and I don't have the, the need to justify myself, so I'm not defensive. So I can actually say, yeah, you should speak into my life. You're welcome to speak in my life. What, what's, uh, what would keep us from that? And I think that the big reason is that Christians become proud of being good. Is that Christians want to be good people. And that causes us to not want people to, to point out our sin. 
And, uh, and it causes us to be uh, uh, slow to forgive other people's sins. And so this leads to our second point. And the second point is this. The first one is that God knows that every one of you are going to sin every day of your life. The second is that God is unmoved by our good works. God is unmoved. He's unimpressed with our good works. Um, recently I learned something, a little bit of mom wisdom. Some of you moms might know this, but uh, Shannon pointed, uh, told me about that if, you're, if your kid uh, gets sick and has a fever, one of the things that you don't want to do you know, you want to you want to get them on the couch, get them a blanket, put on, uh, you know, a movie and Netflix, get them a bendy straw with the ginger ale. Uh, Trev Trev's taught me that one. Bendy straw, you know, make them comfy. But the thing that you don't want to do is give them uh, ibuprofen or pain reliever that gets rid of the fever. You don't want that because what happens is when you give them the pain reliever, they think they're better. And they're jumping around, and they're outside, and they're like, I'm ready, I want to go play outside. And you're like, okay, I guess they seem better. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not better. There is an illusion that they're better. The this, this surface symptoms that the body was telling them there's something wrong were taken care of, but the real problem, they still got the bug. And so they go and they play around, they're jumping around, and their body's not healing, and then the stuff wears off and they're sick again. <laughs> and then there's this perpetual sickness, and they never got better because of the ibuprofen. And actually, I've, I've heard this, that one of the biggest mistakes that a doctor can make is that when someone comes in with symptoms is to prescribe something that deals with the symptoms before you know what the real cause of the symptoms is. Because then you're sending them home feeling better, and they've got something growing inside of them that could be killing them. And so that's a huge mistake. that You don't just give something to deal with the symptoms. That's what Christians do with good works is we take things that uh, of being good, whether it's Bible reading, go to church, serving, ser- serving people, that tell us, I'm okay, I'm not sick. They give us the illusion that I'm not sick. It's like ibuprofen, right? And uh, the, uh, and, it, and I think the reason is because um, when we become Christians... We become Christians because we see that there's a brokenness in our life, that we don't know how to have relationships, we feel alienated from God, we don't have purpose to our life, and so we want desperately, I want to be good. That's why I'm becoming a Christian, I want to be fixed, right? That's, I want a new life, that was the promise, you're going to give me, a, God's going to give me a new life. And so we make resolutions, right? You know, we have a good week, and you say, I think I have this figured out. I, I figured out how to be a good person. I figured out how to do my marriage. I figured out how to read my Bible. And you make resolutions from now on. I'm going to be godly and wise from now on. It's just my new life has started. And, uh, and what's just happened is we've, we've taken a little bit of ibuprofen. And, you, and now, you know, you know what? You might say, what's wrong with being good? Isn't that, that's, that sounds good. Doing good things, what's, what's going to be wrong with that? Well, you know, just this week, I've talked to three different people who had close friends who were pastors. And the pastors, they, they had, I think they had large churches, and uh, they had put on, um, they had to put on a show of being good pastors who have their lives together. That was their whole life. Their marriages were falling apart. No one knew about it. Because their whole life was about, I'm going to do good things. I, I need to be perfect. I need to put on, the, I, I need to do good things. And all of a sudden, their marriages explode. And the church is like, what just happened? And it's a huge shock to everyone. 
That's what's happening. They, um, is, and you know what? A lot of times they, they'll lose their faith even. That'll happen to people. They'll lose their faith because they become too good to believe in anything. Remember? That's what, uh, Hazel, that's what the cab driver said to Hazel Moat. They're too good. There's no need for Jesus anymore. And, it's in, and, and what, what good works can do is they can, it can act like ibuprofen that uh, says you're okay, you're healthy. And yet, really, there are things that are growing inside of us that aren't healthy. And what's, I love how Jesus, you know, Jesus just explodes these kinds of ideas that we have. And I love how he does this in this. Uh, this is verse 7. Uh, Will any of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, you know, plowing and keeping sheep, these are two images for Christian ministry, right? Um, you know, pl- uh, sowing seeds, and uh, Paul talks about that kind of imagery, or being a shepherd, you know, uh, shepherding the flock. So he says, uh, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. See, we think, I'm going to do, you know, I, I might have a whole life of sin, and I'm sinning against people all, every day, and then one day I go and I did something good, and I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna drink it in. How good that feels of just like I'm. I'm awesome. I'm just. I do. God just must think I'm the man, and and it's it's just like a drug that we just we just take in. It feels so good. I'm finally a good person. And what Jesus does is he says, "Listen, God's not impressed." You just did what you were commanded. Of course, you were supposed to do that. Every human, you're just you did once what. Every human is supposed to do, that's just nor, supposed to be normal human life. And, and, and God is not, it, it doesn't move God. Our good works, um, doing good things, do not cause God's heart to stir and say, wow, aren't they just awesome. I know that's a hard thing to hear. For me, that's a hard thing to hear. That's a shocking thing to hear. But that's what Jesus says is that we should say we're unworthy servants. Um, God is unimpressed. He's unmoved. And the reason I think that Jesus is saying that is because, you know, we get so enchanted, so charmed by um, being good and, and having, feeling like we're somebody and that we've made something of our life. And, and the reason God doesn't want us to be enchanted by that is because he wants us to be enchanted by something else. There's something else that he wants uh, us to be um, stirred up by. And, to be, uh, and for us to be moved by. And, and I, that, that's my third point, is that even though God is unmoved by our good works, God is moved by desperation. The thing that moves God is when people call out to God in desperation. And I think that it's amazing, right on the heels of this, this, this uh, passage about the unworthy servants, who the, the master says, what, you did your job, and now you want me to you know, congratulate you and make you dinner. And uh, no, that was, that was just what you're commanded. Right on the heels of that, Luke gives us this, um, this healing that Jesus does. Uh, let's just read this again, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. 
And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, uh, as they, went they were cleansed. Here we have, on the one hand, Jesus saying, I'm not moved, I'm not stirred, I'm not drawn close to you. The thing that drew God close to people was not good works. But the thing that drew Jesus close to people was them crying out and saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. That's the kind of God that we worship. He, his heart responds and moves toward us when we cry out and say, God, I can't, do, I, I can't not sin. I, I can't be a good father. I can't be a good husband. Um, I, I can't build relationships. Um, I, I, I can't kick this addiction. I can't do that. And when we, when we do that, all of a sudden, God's whole energy and power and life kicks into action. And he draws near to us. And uh, that's, the heart, that's the heart of the, what this community is. What, we, what Jesus is drawing is he's not drawing together a, a, a body of, of, of uh, good people. He's drawing to bo- together a body of sinners who want to cry out together in desperation and see God work. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's not just desperation doesn't just draw God um, close to us, but it also draws other people close to us. I mean, I know that all of you know that whether you're in home group or you're meeting with someone, and, you know, if they sat and told you about all the good things they've been doing in your life, they're kind of a cardboard, you know, two-dimensional person. There's no depth to them. You're, you're, you're not moved toward them. You don't say, wow, I feel close to them. I know this person. I love them. But if they open up to you about their struggles, the things they're wrestling through, all of a sudden you're like, I love them. We had the best time. We were connecting. I just feel like we're the best friends in the whole world. You move close to one another. That's what desperation does, is, is that we're unimpressed with each other's good works, right? God is, like, God is the same way. And what he wants from us is people who are in need. And that you know, when we do good things, I mean, it's a blessing to do good things. Good things are, are, are a good thing, but to just thank God for them and say, wow, God, I can't believe I got to be a part of that. I can't believe I got to be in this person's life or to serve them. And what a blessing. Instead of just drinking it down like, oh, way to go, you know, just like gulping down what a great person I am, just thank you, Jesus, and, and, and continuing in that sense of desperation. And, um, and I think that... Um, the key, the, the big key at the end of this series on discipleship, that's the heart of discipleship. God knows we're sinners, and so it's on a regular basis coming to God as, as people who are desperate, who are needy. And the thing is, he moves towards us in his power, and his power shows up, and he works. And if we do that as a community, we're just opening the gates for God's power, for his glory, and the work of the gospel. And you know what? That will change our lives. That will fill our church with good works. Except we won't get the glory. God will. So let's pray together. Our Father, we are amazed that you are not what we thought. We thought that you were holding back your, your love, that, you, that we had to earn it. Um, and yet, you move towards the desperate. Lord, you know the desperation that each one of us have in our lives as sinners. And we pray that you would give us faith to cry out like these lepers and say, Jesus, have mercy on us.
And I pray that in the process you'd give us eyes to see where you are working and where your grace is showing up. And, uh, and I pray that uh, the truth of the gospel would just make us as a body um, not uh, in a, a sinless community, but in a community that is alive, that is three-dimensional, that is rich, that is real and genuine and full of your glory and full of your power. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.